0: You're listening to that'll preach i'm brian and i'm back here with my faithful co-host dr paul Riscala of the esteemed hillsdale college uh and he is back after a little hiatus paul has been up to a lot of things uh he's become too popular for this podcast but we were somehow able to wrangle him back in he is teaching classes at hillsdale he is also the coach of a soccer team and uh so for those of you doubt, doubting Paul's athletic prowess, you better think twice. This man is is no joke. Can you talk have to you, us, Paul? First have, of all, have, have how you, are you doing?
1: Have you ever seen a soccer coach? It requires Paul, no I, athletic I was, ability whatsoever. You,
0: you, you just killed my introduction to you. So go saying, ahead, Paul. Spotlights you on you. Talk, <laughs> well, t- talk to me about how you got involved in the, these soccer shenanigans.
1: I was I was totally duped. I was I was told by students, "Hey, you like soccer? Do you want to, you know, help us out?" And I was like, "Sure." And the next thing I knew, I had like that is the worst duping. That was
0: the dupe. They literally asked you a direct question, and that's what tricked you. (laughs) It's like you're like, "Hey, do you want to coach our soccer team?" It's like, "All right, checks out." And you're like, "Wait a minute, I'm coaching a soccer team."
1: It's like it's like you agree to do something and then you like put your hands out and they just keep adding more things to it and it's like, oh well. But it's been fun. Coach, it's been good. Like,
0: I mean yeah, uh, how many how many players you got?
1: We are in transition right now because we've got a lot of seniors who are graduating, but we've transitioning
0: is very popular today. So that, that's that makes right, sense.
1: Yeah. yeah. Not at Hillsdale, it's so, a very different kind of transition.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So did you recruit these students or did they just sign up?
1: Uh, They, so they, they have tryouts every year. And so I'll be on next year helping out with tryouts, but these are students who've made it through the grueling, rigorous Hillsdale soccer club tryout process.
0: What is it? You (laughs) kick a ball remotely in the vicinity of the goal.
1: You have to like, (laughs) you have to like uh, pontificate on Plato's form of the soccer ball or something. Oh
0: my gosh. Yeah. No, it's fun. It's fun. are, Are you the
1: only coach? Yes. How many coaches do you think are typically on a?
0: I don't know. I mean, sometimes you have like different coaches specialized with the goalie or works with defense, whatever. But it's I mean, just like, you. Yeah. You come up with the drills. You schedule the practices. You do all that stuff.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. So it, it's it's been a lot, but it's been fun. I mean, ideally, and, yeah. Uh, if we if we were good and if we were better, we'd have more staff. And you guys coach. won.
0: You guys lo- You guys lost your first game, didn't you?
1: We did. We've got a game coming up this Friday, so hopefully that. What's your uh,
0: team name called?
1: We're the Chargers. That's the Hillsdale, the Hillsdale
0: Chargers. Yeah. The Hillsdale Chargers. Who you, who's your rival? I'm so fascinated by this. This is a... Uh...
1: You know, I... We got destroyed by Michigan in the fall. So I think... Yeah. There's, there's like a... There's a lot there. So hopefully that's one that we can, you know, sort of reclaim some of our lost glory in next time we play. But the, the league is small. I think there's like only 10 teams.
0: Is it co-ed or is it... It is just no. just just dudes. Gotcha. Well, go yeah. be a leader of men. Be a, be a man with a chest, which transitions <laughs> us into <laughs>
1: uh, another transition such, that we're talking such about. Such a tenuous uh, connection.
0: Well, you use words like tenuous that are too smart, and I assume that you're offending me, so I'm offended by that. <laughs> right. It's a movie reference, sort of, if you catch it. Uh, that means you watched a movie that you shouldn't be watching as a Christian. Anyways, so <laughs> the abolition of man. So we're, what we're what we're gonna do? This is this is just our useless banter that you guys all miss dearly. But uh, we do want to talk about stuff of substance, and uh, we're doing a little uh, series on another C.S. Lewis book because people apparently liked when we talked about C.S. Lewis, mainly because we're just talking about his ideas and not our own, because <laughs> those are too dangerous and controversial. To be aired, but we split them in under the guise of talking about C.S. Lewis. So we did one on mere Christianity. You can check that out. Uh, we also did one on miracles. Those should be, again, all archived on our podcast channel. We decided to do something uh, about it's a kind of Lewis's thoughts about the society in general. It's not particularly aimed toward Christianity, although obviously it influences it. Uh, we're going to do a short book he wrote called The Abolition of Man it's actually a collection of essays, I would, I would really say. And uh, Paul, you really like this book and you have a lot of thoughts about this book. And uh, it is a really, really succinct and kind of devastating critique by Lewis on some forms of ac- uh, academia and education and the ways that we talk about language and things like that. It might sound a little highbrow, but actually it's pretty practical and it's got a very famous quote. Maybe we'll just start with this quote because I think it sets the mood. This is actually the very last couple sentences of the first section that we're going to look at. And uh, it's from, again, the first section of Abolition of Man. Lewis writes, In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and build the geldings be fruitful. (laughs) That's a great ending line. That's beautiful. Um, We castrate and build the geldings be fruitful. Paul, what's a gelding?
1: You know, I'm actually not sure. I thought it was like some sort of little duck.
0: No, I'm pretty sure it's a... Let's let's Google this. I think it's a young horse. This is like again, like Joe Rogan. Jamie, pull that up. Not that anyone should be listening to Joe Rogan. Not that um, we know
1: anything about Joe Rogan. Not,
0: not, not that we know anything about. It's a castrated male horse, such as a pony, donkey, or mule. So uh, <laughs> there you go. That's
1: hilarious. These pictures are so funny.
0: Oh, you Google image search that? What is wrong with you, you? I did. I, I, you disgusting I man.
1: I thought wow. geldling was going to wow. be like like a gosling or like a little. Furry duck or something?
0: Are you thinking of Ryan Gelding? (laughs) The actor Ryan Gelding, yeah.
1: Yeah, That's actually very clever.
0: I'm impressed. Right. So, you know, this is uh, C.S. Lewis at his finest, writing a very punchy line. But uh, I think this really sets the tone for Abolition of Man. Now, for people who think that this is just for nerdy theological people or people who have nothing better to do with their life, why is... The abolition of man, particularly this first chapter on men without chess. Why should we care about this, Paul?
1: actually it is it is just for nerdy people, and so everyone else should go home. <clears throat> okay, um, thank you for that. <laughs> uh it it I think I think this this is where you see Lewis really like shine when it comes to I don't want to say quite philosophy, because we've already talked about Lewis and philosophy and what we think about that. And we've got lots of hot takes (laughs) (laughs) Boring. Lewis, Lewis's command of like, he references, he starts the book off with a quote from Confucius. And then he's talking about Indian philosophy, Chinese philosophy, and Christianity. And um, it, yeah, so it's a book about education. And it's a book about what education is supposed to do. Which I guess is pretty controversial in our times. But essentially, Lewis wants to make the move that you, like, education is not just about teaching students' heads. It's not just about critical thinking. It's about cultivating and stirring, Im- like, imaginations and emotions and affections and all this sort of stuff so that you don't end up with a society of, like, he calls them men without chests. You don't end up with just a bunch of robots who don't have the right affections cultivated. Who don't recognize beauty when they see it who, who are not repulsed by ugliness both in like aesthetic stuff but also moral stuff too like that training individuals education is about the whole person um, so he talks a lot about like developing and cultivating this aesthetic sense so you can go and recognize when something is worthy of the title beautiful or not um, and it's not just sort of subjective so he talks about objective beauty versus non-objective beauty and there's just a lot of far reaching ramifications for, for the stuff here. And it's very relevant today. These, these conversations come up all the time.
0: Okay. So this is really Lewis's take on what education is supposed to do. And like you mentioned, there's an aesthetic aspect to it. I mean, when we say aesthetic, do we, do we mean like, when I think of that, I think of like, Oh, the furniture looks nice. Or like, this is a nice color on this (laughs) bed or something like that. But how does aesthetics work in terms of moral judgments or, different aspects of reality. I mean, what are we talking about here when we talk about aesthetics?
1: Well, he he gives this really nice example of the English poet Coleridge who comes across a, a little waterfall and uh, he's with two guys. One guy calls it beautiful or sublime is the word he uses. And the other guy just calls it pretty. And Coleridge like is is offended at the use of the word pretty to try to capture the beauty of this waterfall. And Lewis wants to say that Yeah, like when we use words like beautiful, sublime, pretty, ugly, we're not just talking about subjective preferences. Uh, Sometimes the things that we're looking at in the world are actually either appropriate of, like those terms are appropriate or inappropriate. So we can use them correctly and incorrectly the same way we can use the term good and evil uh, objectively when we talk about human actions and behaviors and things like that. So Lewis wants to say that beauty, the things that we should enjoy, the things that we should be drawn to, there is an objective dimension there, that there are at least some right answers. Like the person who goes to Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon, or I was just in Vancouver last week and the mountains and the Pacific Ocean. Lewis wants to say that if you look at that and if you come away saying, well, that's pretty cool. Like there's something, there's something wrong there. Like you as a human being, you're the sort of creature that's constituted to find that moving and compelling and beautiful. And if you don't, we have to say either like psychologically something went wrong or in your development and education, something went wrong, but there's a disconnect there, right? That's, that's not what it means to be human.
0: So he's basically saying that just like there's a right answer when it says, is murder wrong? It's objectively wrong, right? Yeah. But you can also say that about, whether something's beautiful or not, something can genuinely not be, be it's wrong to find certain things beautiful. And maybe we could understand that. For example, I don't know, you shouldn't think torturing an animal or torturing a human should ever be beautiful. Or even um, the uh, objectifying someone is is not, should not be viewed as beautiful. Um, Or someone being objectified should not be viewed as beautiful. Right. But sometimes our, emotions don't line up with reality we do find evil things beautiful because and that's a moral defect in us it'd be the same the same moral defect that would make us say murder is fine is the same moral defect that would make us say that something evil is beautiful or that we find something grotesque to be beautiful but it seems like there's another claim that it's also we're we're also in error if we don't find something objectively beautiful to be beautiful Yeah, Like you could say a sunset or Niagara Falls. Now, how did, so essentially beauty is not in the eye of the beholder.
1: At least not Uh, all the time. Yeah.
0: Not all the time. Maybe that's because, because that's the other thing I was thinking of where people do have different tastes and preferences. So how do you distinguish between when your preference is actually wrong versus it's just different? How do you make that distinction?
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great question. And and I I don't know that there's a, a clear answer here, but we probably should I think Lewis's strategy is going to be to identify the extremes, the stuff on the clear black and the clear white. And from there, we can, you know, sort of try to make our way. And there's going to be great cases in between, like... uh, Like Nickelback.
0: Like, is Nickelback objectively good music, (laughs) bad? Is it a preference thing?
1: Right. So when Justin Bieber, definitely bad. Nickelback, gray. And on the, the, you know, what can we put on that side? We could put... Don't put the Beatles, because we already talked about the Beatles. We think they're overrated. Yeah, right, uh, right, right. Yeah, I don't right. know. Insert, like, you know, Mozart, Beethoven, I don't know, one of the classics. Or, yeah, or you, you, might, you, might, you might not like those guys either. But um, just, just to quote from Lewis directly. So he says that the man who calls the cataract or the waterfall sublime is not intending simply to describe his own emotions. He's also claiming that the object is one that merits those emotions. So sometimes when we look at the world we see that certain objects require that we talk about them in a certain way. And so it would, like some labels are appropriate, some labels are inappropriate, like the ethics case that you brought up earlier. Um, and it's not always clear with ethics, right? Like sometimes there's gonna be, we're, we're just not you know positioned well enough to know what's the right answer. But Lewis wants to say that more often than not, there is a right answer. And there are black and white cases, there are clear cases, but there's all gonna be cases that are gray and, And that's okay, right? I think he's just defending this very conservative principle that at least sometimes some things merit the title beautiful and sometimes some things merit the title ugly and it's not just a matter of our own preferences.
0: Sure, so whether you whether or not you respond as if something is beautiful would not affect that it's intrinsically beautiful. Right. Just like if you felt if you had no if you killed somebody and you felt no remorse for it your level of feeling has no effect on whether that was a right or wrong action, right? Right. And in the same way, there are certain beautiful things that are meant, if, if, our, if we respond correctly, we'll respond with wonder or humility. I mean, that's something that Lewis talks about. We're not yeah. just talking about this random collision of atoms in your mind and these random releases of chemicals just happen. And it has nothing to do with the actual thing you're observing meriting it. I mean, use that language where it's almost like A sunrise deserves a sense of awe or even seeing Mm -hmm. love and sacrifice in someone else that merits a certain emotional response. And if you're numb to that, that something is off in you. Right. And I think we, we could even say that that's what happens maybe on the most extreme scale with psychopaths or sociopaths or something like that. They don't have the right. Uh, attachment of, of response to a certain thing. And maybe that, I mean, I don't know, maybe that's different because they can't, or it's an inability, but at the very least we have this intuition. We have this sense that if you don't find this beautiful, something's wrong with you. Or if you find this thing beautiful, something's (laughs) wrong with you. And we, and we have that internal sense. And Lewis is going, we're lying to ourselves if we deny that. And that's actually something that maps onto something real that I guess from Lewis's point, God has designed us that way; that our emotions are part of our humanity, and our redeemed humanity. Our emotions will respond always correctly to things that are beautiful, and always be repulsed by things that are evil.
1: That's exactly right. And and he's pushing back against this overly intellectual, overly robotic view of humanity that says uh, we are just these rational thinking things in meat suits, as as you like to call it. And that's not that's not what it is to be a human being. So. To train an individual, like an educational system should not look at children as if they are just brains in meat costumes or that they're just pure intellects or primarily intellects, that they are their heads and hearts. And so an education needs to take into account both of those aspects of the human person and train both of those through, through providing knowledge, but also through modeling how to how to respond appropriately to the world. That, that That's sort of what virtue is. And we talked about this a lot. Being a good human, um, Jesus wept, right, at, at the death of Lazarus. That was an appropriate response. It, it's a situation that called for weeping. It's a situation that didn't call for laughter, right? Like, that's the sort of response that had you done that, it would not just be like a social faux pas. You'd be doing something bad or wrong because right. the situation doesn't merit that. It merits something else. So training... Part of what building up virtue is, is being trained to use the emotions and express them in the right ways. So you can't just be totally devoid of your emotions um, if you're to be a good human being. You can't just be an intellect or a brain. That's that's part of Lewis's point.
0: So Lewis quotes St. Augustine and Aristotle, and they kind of work in conjunction Yeah. to your point about St. Augustine talking about a beauty that's intrinsic into things that should draw out a proper response. So St. Augustine speaks about uh, ordo amoris. I don't know if I said that correctly. The, and, and, and the summary of it would be that to Augustine, um, every object has a certain degree of love and affection it should draw out of us. So a waterfall, a sunset, there is an actual amount of joy it should bring out of it, an amount of emotion, I would say, affection that it should draw out of us. That's appropriate to it. In other words, seeing something as beautiful is appropriate in some things. And you combine that idea with Aristotle, who says that the aim of education is to make the pupil like and dislike what he ought. So combining those together, you could almost say that part of education is to train your emotions and your affections to love the things you should love and be repulsed by the things that that should repulse you. But that's very different from, I think, modern education and even among more, quote unquote, conservative. Leading people, it's education is just to present nine different views and you make up your Mm. own mind. Yeah, it's actually not the classical vision of education. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, this this is, as as you pointed out, it's an error that people on the right and the left tend to make where they think that what a good education (laughs) is, is to just quote unquote, preserve a student's autonomy. And to do that, you never tell students the right answer. You never tell them what to think. You never tell them what to feel. Preserving autonomy means you just give them a bunch of options. So it's sort of just like survey smorgasbord approach, like here's 14 different views about free will or the soul or what makes actions right or ethics or and then students like contrary to having their autonomy preserved are sort of just like left floundering. They're just like, okay, well, I've got like 6 million options now, things I should believe. Like, what do I do with all this? So Lewis is saying that view of education, which the left and the right both tend to like, right? Like, yeah, don't tell people what to think. Just give them critical thinking skills. Just give them the ability to choose for themselves. Like, that's that's not a good system of education. And to quote Lewis directly, and I, I love this. This is, I've actually used this as part of my teaching philosophy. He says, the task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. The right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandist. For famished nature will be avenged, and a hard heart is no infallible protection against a soft head. So part of a good education is to irrigate a desert. So these these children, these young minds are deserts, and our job is to irrigate and cultivate in them uh, fruit. And the fruit is not just knowledge, but it's fruit in the way of sentiments, like you talked about affections to respond to sunsets and beauty and people in the right kinds of ways. And part of that is uh, presenting them with knowledge. Part of it is also just modeling for them how to live well. And so all of education has this, like, um, this goal or this aim of producing good human beings, good citizens, not just smart individuals. And I think I think that is a really important insight that we've lost and tend to miss both on the right and the left. And Lewis is a very helpful corrective here.
0: So that's a fascinating connection you're you're talking about here. And I can't help but think about the focus on sort of STEM or yeah. viewing the humanities and classical education, things like this, as sort of why do we need that? Like and, and I think underneath that assumption, again, STEM is great, but underneath that assumption is that if you do these jobs. If you, if you do these, if you go to a STEM career, you'll get a job that pays well to buy stuff to have your ducks in order so that you'll have a happy life. So it's built on a your vision doubles. of a happy life. You're, yeah, exactly. Now, <laughs> obviously, man, I'm not saying you should live in poverty. I'm not saying that like, you know, having health insurance. I mean, those are all great things, but there is a kind of vision of as long as you get the material things in order and if these jobs are a way to get to that or even if you know, even the idea of like make sure you make an impact, and that means this or this or that, those aren't necessarily bad things, but that should be the point of education. There's actually a moral force to education. I think that's the key insight that that Lewis points out. That it's actually a matter of morality and a matter of, of functioning society, that its members like what they ought to like and dislike what they shouldn't like. Now, again, I'm not saying preferences like everyone should like the same kind of music or everyone should like the same kind of movies or whatever, but that there's a moral sensibility attached to our affections. And I think something interesting too is, is how our affections can be desensitized. So we think about mm-hmm. violence. We should abhor violence when it's done, when it's you know, unjust kind of violence, um, but we could be desensitized to it. So we could in our minds know this is wrong, we don't have the proper response. We don't, we're not repulsed by it or, or think about uh, like things like um, the objectification or sexualization of everything. We, We don't, we're so overwhelmed by it that it becomes normal and we're no longer offended by it, or it no longer strikes us as taboo or violating something sacred. So we can be, so being desensitized in our affections can have a negative moral effect on a society. And oftentimes, morals are shaped by aesthetics. We want to imitate what we find mm. to be beautiful. That's and right. if we find vain things to be beautiful, then that's going to drive a lot of our decisions. Um, I mean, how many of us know being rich and famous and beautiful and all these things aren't going to bring us happiness? And yet, you look at our spending habits, the things we focus on, our conversations are our actions betray us. We know, I mean, how many stories are there, right? I mean, Brad Pitt's saying like, you know, being famous ain't it. It's not, you know, this is not going to fix you. Or Jim Carrey saying, I wish everyone could be famous to realize or rich and famous to realize it doesn't fix anything. We know all these stories, but it doesn't mm. intellectually register because aesthetically we're still drawn to it.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and even, even more so than just the, the violence or the object objectification of people Um, think about the ethics of humor even like what sorts of things do we find funny that are not supposed to be funny or, you know, joking, joking about things that are, we talk about it and we sort of like mask it under the guise of, well, it's dark humor, but you know, dark humor up to a point, right? Like, uh, presumably if, if our affections should be in some ways, uh, like Christ or like the virtuous person then then some things are off limits to joke about right and so so it does um this sort of like objectivity to our affections touches on all these different areas the media that we consume the things that we find funny the stuff in nature that we're drawn to um, and all of that is tied together with the moral sense and and one thing that i think is really uh interesting and another piece of evidence for lewis's view is he says that this is found this idea of the objectivity is found in sort of every society. So he's not just talking as a Christian here. Of course Christianity has this idea of moral virtue being objective, but he also he talks about Hinduism. He talks about the rita. I don't know how to pronounce that, but this uh, revealed cosmic order of moral virtues, the ceremonies in the temple, righteousness, correctness, order, uh, truth, correspondence to reality, the Plato's form of the good, this abstract conception of there being a moral like structure to the universe, the Chinese Tao, the nature, the way that the universe was supposed to be structured, super cosmic progression. So he's trying to say that that is what we've all sort of arrived at at the same time. Um, so it's not it's not a uniquely Christian idea,
0: right? That's that's an important point too. That even if you're not. Like you say, a Christian, if, even if it's not a necessarily Christian idea, although it might be sourced in the Christian God, and, or I guess all beauty and truth is find its, finds its origin in God. But you can see even in other cultures, they recognize it's, it's such uh, an obvious thing that vast, vastly different traditions still come to the same conclusion as Christianity. And that's a very powerful argument. You know, I think that that's in other words, Lewis is saying that the view that's being spouted by academics at his time or educators at his time is actually against the grain of a large portion of human history across cultures. And I think Lewis often makes this point where we got to be very careful when we discard the wisdom of the past. We shouldn't be uncritical of the past, but if something is so prevalent in different cultures, it should give us pause before we sort of poo-poo it and dismiss it. And, and you see that dismissal when he talks about the people who write what he, what he calls the Green Book, which was a kind of a, a language primer in the UK uh, when he was a boy uh, or, or I guess at the time that he was uh, writing Abolition of Man and basically saying like, look, this, this is actually doing harm, but we don't really see it yet. Like these people are just saying, oh, when you say that something's beautiful, what you're saying is not that that thing's actually beautiful, but that you have feelings of joy when you see it. But it's not actually saying that that thing in itself should do that or that's a proper response. It just is. And it seems like a very sort of scientific. We're just observing the facts, all that stuff. But Lewis says, actually, no, you are dismantling a vision of the world. And you are robbing it of its integrity when you when you make when you dismiss emotions as if it's just how our body reacts physically when light comes into our eyes and we notice something. And, uh, and I, he has this great quote where he says that no emotion is in itself a judgment. In that sense, all emotions and sentiments are illogical. But they can be reasonable or unreasonable as they conform to reason or fail to confirm. And he capitalizes reason there. The heart never takes the place of the head, but it can and should obey it. What are your thoughts on that phrase? I mean, that that's really a good line right there. The heart never takes the place of the head, but it can and should obey it.
1: Yeah, I I think I think it's that central insight that to be virtuous is to to live in an embodied human way, the way that we're supposed to. And um, you can't, you can't be a good person without incorporating all aspects of humanity. Like a good human being cannot be one without relationships or one without uh, laughter or one without uh, awe or wonder, right? Like these, these are, these are what separate us out from not just animals, but robots or even like if other sentient rational creatures exist on other planets like there's something distinctive about being human like these emotions are human and that's why it gives the incarnation such such power that God becomes incarnate as a human not just as a rational robot thing he came to embody and live and redeem the human emotions and affections and, and experience and Lewis takes that very seriously and Lewis makes morality inseparable from being human, with all of with all of the difficulties, right? You can't just be uh, a good, virtuous person living from your armchair, right? You can't just like think about ethics and become a good person. You have to be and do and experience and live and feel all these things. And a crucial uh, a crucial step in sanctification is testing out your moral emotions in different situations and having them refined and cultivated. Uh, there's a there's a great piece in the New York Times a few years ago by David Brooks, who talks about how we as a society have lost the ability to comfort others because we've become so scandalized by and unused to the idea of suffering. We don't know how to suffer with people because in the West, the technology is removed from us suffering. We don't experience poverty or, or death in the same ways that we used to. and so. I think, I think that diagnosis is true. And, and, and if that's true, it means we've lost part of what it is to be human, right? Here's one area where technology and science and progress and Western extravagance have made living a human life not as easy as it once was. And so that's something we have to retrain in ourselves. How do I like empathize with someone? How do I like comfort someone who's undergoing something terrible? How do I sit there and just be a comforting presence to someone and not feel the need to always have to say, you know, trite little Romans 828 type platitudes. And all, all that stuff is is the moral emotions that Lewis is talking about. And Jesus, the ideal moral agent, virtuous person, is gonna do that perfectly. We as imperfect agents, it's gonna take us a lot longer to get to that point, but that's that's still the goal. The goal is to not just intellectually think about these morals and have a grasp of what ethics requires of us, but to live that out in an embodied way and have our intuitions and affections uh, be molded in the appropriate way so that they can guide our ethical reflection as well.
0: Well, I remember something you said uh, a while ago about how uh, sometimes ethics professors, then just because you're an ethics professor doesn't mean that you yourself are an ethical person. There's, there's, that there there's can been be
1: studies that show this. It's not just, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, that's why, so that's why I don't trust that's, you with anything, fair. Paul. But, uh, yeah. but you wonder if it's because, and it's kind of like what you're saying, It's not just about cultivating an intellectual understanding of what is good or bad, but also cultivating affections Mm. and even emotions to what is good and bad. Not just knowing the truth, but loving the truth. And uh, I think Lewis gives an example of a Roman soldier, right, who tells his son that it is a sweet and seemly thing to die for his country. So he's saying he's. He's not giving him the ethics of nationalism or any of these types of things. He's merely just saying, son, this is an important thing. And you can see the emotion and the way he speaks about it and the affections of the father are a way of transmitting that value to this son before he can even understand the intricacies of it. And Lewis says this. He says, he was giving the boy the best he had, giving of his spirit to humanize him as he had given of his body to beget him. In other words, what this father is doing is he is helping his son be a human. Sometimes when we talk about emotions and affections, we can sort of straw man it and be like, Oh, you're just talking about like just being at this enslaved to your emotions, navel gazing, always talking about how you feel. It's actually the opposite. What that Roman soldier is saying is son, these are the times when you should show emotion. Mm -hmm. And that helps clarify other times when you're just being self-indulgent or narcissistic. But, when you give your life, or when you see sacrifice, or when you see love, or when you see tragedy, part of being a human is you weep. Part of being human is you rejoice. Part of being human is that it affects you in some way. So the ideal isn't just to be, like you mentioned earlier, or Lewis mentions, being robots or you know, brains in meat suits, but training your senses to understand when it's appropriate to respond a particular way. And that's actually virtuous, right? It's, in other words, you're supposed to have self-control. You're not being emo and navel-gazing, right? You have self-control. You know it is appropriate to weep that Lazarus is dead. It is appropriate to wrestle at the weight of what I'm about to go through. You think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's an appropriate emotional response because those things were given to us by God. And so I think that that's a really important aspect. And if you think about it in another respect, going back to the professors who are immoral but they're ethics professors, it's because there are are non – I don't want to say non-rational, but non-intellectual ways of building that virtue of responding correctly to things. So a simple thing could be just the act of enjoying something beautiful with somebody else or enjoying time with a friend or listening to somebody or being charitable to someone. These things are not necessarily, we're not thinking uh, intellectually about them, but the doing of them cultivates something in right. us. Even things as forgiving someone for, for a slight or, or being uh, somebody who encourages somebody else or weeping with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. When we actually practice these things, we are actually forming ourselves maybe in more powerful ways than if we just read books and understand things about ethics or just even podcast about it. I don't know.
1: (laughs) This is your number one source for sanctification. Uh, But, but, but on on that note, there, there is, there's a huge body of psychological literature on how moral exemplars actually help us become better. And so that just means We think about people who are moral ideas in our minds and not just think about in the sense of, you know, we, you know, memorize some propositions, but we, we meditate and reflect on their lives and the good things that they did and the sacrifices they carried out uh, and, and, and see it as attractive. We sort of like, we cultivate in ourselves the sense of seeing those individuals as attractive and Christians have a leg up on that because we've got the lives of all of those who have gone before us in Scripture—we've got Christ, we've got all of these moral pillars and moral exemplars that we're called to think about and reflect on the law. Like that should be part of our spiritual discipline, thinking about these lives and trying to to emulate those individuals, right? Asking the Holy Spirit to to make us more um, embodying these virtues and these characteristics that we find so attractive in these in these other individuals. So, so there is even a psychological literature on how. Thinking about and contemplating and meditating on moral exemplars actually does translate into uh, virtue and and better tendencies in individuals. Shocker.
0: And there is, I mean, how many? There's so many uh, reminders in the scriptures to imitate Christ. Also imitate Mm -hmm. people like Abraham or David, as flawed as they are. But you see that in Hebrews 11; it's the Hall of Faith. I mean, these are people we're supposed to imitate, and that's. A lot of how we actually develop. I mean, I, I, that study is very interesting that it even like supports that point because a lot of times people believe things because somebody that they trust or respected or wanted to be like, believe them. I mean, I, I, I think about like, that's how social media influencers or, you know, or celebrities can have so much capital spouting yeah, opinions true. on things they have no, no clue yeah. about. Like, why do we care what celebrities say about, Politics or society. <laughs> well, it's because in a sense, we've cultivated our affections to want what they have. We want to be admired like them. We, we want to seem ageless like they are. Mm. We, we want to be unique like they are. And then so if they have a particular view on something, we go, well, maybe mm. if I believe that I can be like mm. them. And no one would ever we don't wake up going, I want to do that. It's sort of built into our programming. It's just a way, And we can do that with theologians or we can do that with pastors or Christian celebrities or whatever. Um, we tend to be like, hey, that guy has a great marriage and great kids. And if he believes that, then I'll, I want to believe that, too, because I want that. I, I think sometimes Mormonism has that appeal. Mm-hmm. You know, you got uh, people who are married sometimes to multiple wives. I don't know, but you know, you have a, you have a <laughs> strong marriage, <laughs> these happy kids. Yeah, I know. These, they don't listen to this, you know, happy kids and they seem to have everything together. And you're like, well, I mean, if I can have that, and if they believe these things and they have this life, then maybe I could believe those things and have that life. And that works on a lot of levels. Again, that's not even to say that that's bad. It's just the way that it works and we have to be aware yeah. of that. So we want to make sure we have good people that we imitate and that those people that we imitate themselves have their affections trained in a, in a proper way. And training your emotions is something Lewis is really <laughs> keen on, which maybe today, we don't really talk about that. Um, but denying your emotions or being stoic all the time is not the same thing as training them, yeah, right? If right. you train emotions, you, you, you're trying to push them to a purpose, you're not trying to deny them. But also training them is not letting them flow out of you in this kind of just mess of feelings hmm. but being able to say this emotion is a tool to respond rightly to things that are good and and to things that are not good or evil.
1: Someone's going to leave this podcast and just be like, well, Paul and Brian told me to go search through scripture for exemplars and come away with like a list of like Judas Ananias, Sapphira, and a nice All the like yeah, worst well, people.
0: Yeah, yeah well, I mean they in a sense they're like <laughs> negative exemplars. I mean, it's like don't be like these people. I mean, that's, true. that's in the Bible yeah. too. A bunch of warnings of like, yeah, don't be like Esau, don't be like this guy, don't be like the Israelites in the wilderness that's true, and all that that's
1: stuff. True. Did you but, did you um, catch where Lewis actually takes a dig at uh, at the guys who wrote the green book? Sort of just like a stay in your lane criticism. I just wanted to read this out cuz I thought it was hilarious. He just says, yeah, uh, in filling their book uh they, they've been unjust to the headmaster who buys the book, who has got the work of amateur philosophers, whereas he expected the work of professional grammarians. So basically, like, the guys who wrote this book, they're grammar professors, but they're talking about philosophy and they do kind of a crappy job. And so it's Lewis basically saying, like, stay in your lane. Like, don't, if you're a scientist, don't think you could speak confidently about philosophy if you're a politician, if you're a celebrity, don't think you should, you can speak competently about like really complex issues that you have no basis or background in. So Lewis, uh,
0: he sounds like another philosopher. I man, know was amazing. He says he com- I'm talk <laughs> about you, Paul. I'm talking he about compares you. it. You, 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 you're the philosopher.
1: He compares it to the man who is annoyed. If his son returns from the dentist with his teeth untouched and his head crammed with the dentist's, uh, whatever, Baconian theory. So yeah. Hmm. There, there you go. go.
0: Dental hygiene advice and philosophy in one podcast. Well, what can you find that? Can you ask for any exactly. more? Well, you know, again, and maybe this is where we should kind of, you know, re- re- come full circle with that last quote about men without chests. Um, and that's such a powerful image where it's like, man, we want people to be virtuous citizens, but we're undercutting the very process that makes yeah. that. And uh, what did you think about that imagery of men without chests? I mean, I think that's pretty powerful. It's almost like kind of like we're emasculating people by not letting them recognize the, the, the true value of responding to beautiful things with beauty or with with uh, with with uh, the proper affection. Yes,
1: yeah, because you might think it's the other way around. You might think that actually, you know, we're we're making people weak by instilling emotional training in them or teaching them how to be uh, to train their affections in the right sort of ways, we're making them weak. But Lewis is saying, no, it's the exact opposite. Like, if you don't train someone's heart and you just train their head, you've effectively you've neutered them. You've made them less powerful. You've made them less likely to be a good citizen. So it's the emotions that actually strengthen the individual and make them more uh, more of a good citizen, more likely to contribute in positive ways to society, and and not not the other way around. So he kind of flips it on ten. It's really it's really good.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of—it's not the, the solution to sort of maybe the softness of today. If if you know if you that's something that you might think is is prevalent in culture, uh, which I think there's that's true, is isn't, isn't to be like a you know hard nosed Clint Eastwood just squinting at the world. <laughs> and there's almost a cynical way that I don't think is proper to Christians, yeah. where you're just sort of just like the world is just this horrible place and you're just gritting your teeth, getting through it and getting what's yours. And Mm. it's actually a very malnourished life. And that's not real courage. I think sometimes atheists make a lot of virtue out of staring into the void and not being afraid. And I, I don't think that that's correct because, and I don't think that that's true because I think even for the most hardened sort of stoic person, you know, they do feel pain when they ought to. And I think when they end up not feeling pain, when they ought to, something is lost of their humanity. Right. And again, it's not the sort of, we don't want to get polarized of, of like, you can imagine sort of, again, the emo kid who everything is psychologically damaging and, you know, crying all the time, da, da, da all that stuff. But the solution isn't to shut that off. Again, it's to train your emotions mm. so that you know when it's appropriate and, uh, and to be able to, to, to be able to imitate, I think the example of Christ And I think, too, you know, King David, he's a man of war, but he composed a bunch of songs, poems that are deeply emotional. And they're appropriately emotional. You know, you think about him weeping over Absalom, his son, or weeping about his infant son who dies. You think about uh, the turmoil he feels when Saul is coming after him and the fear that grips his heart. Very emotional, very deep, but very profound. Not kind of the shallow, you know performative emotion we have today. Mm. Maybe that's the difference. Yeah. Some um, emotionalism today, is it's, it's performative, but the genuine emotions that come out of, especially a man who has borne the weight of responsibility, borne the, the weight of things like war and loss, the genuine outpouring of emotion and affections is a powerful thing. And it speaks to his character and his integrity. And Put it simply as Lewis puts it, that's the point of education to make men and women uh, attuned to that. And, uh, you know, that's lost. But that's why we have professors like you, Paul, doing that for students and influencing minds and directing them to the right path, to the town.
1: That's
0: right. That's right. There you go. There you go. It's been a great discussion. We're gonna keep trucking along with this book. It's a short book. I'd encourage you to pick it up. You can buy it on Kindle, you can buy hard copy, super cheap, Abolition of Man. You'll really benefit from it. We're gonna keep going with it. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. That'll help us out. Thanks for listening.